Welcome to the Apple Store Covent Garden in London. Will you please welcome tonight's moderator, Robbie Collin. Uh, without further ado, I would like to introduce the trailer for The Good Dinosaur. You. What is his name? I don't know. I name him, I keep him. Killer. Ah, stinky! Violet. Spike! Lunatic! Spot! Spot! Come here, Spot, come here! Well, ain't you just the cutest thing? <laughs> Whoa. Whoa! I'm done being scared. If you ain't scared, you ain't alive. I miss my family. You don't understand. From The Good Dinosaur, please welcome to the stage the producer, Denise Reem, and the director, Peter Sohn. Hello. Hello, thank you for having us here. Thank you very much. Guys, I should start by saying that um, that is probably the 251st time I've seen that trailer because I've got a two-year-old kid who has basically made me watch it pretty much every day of the week since it first launched. Um, but when I saw the film itself, I was surprised because I think the trailer uh, sets the film up as being this animal odyssey film in the style of The Lion King or Dumbo or one of these classic Disney adventures. But what I saw yesterday was every bit as much of a kind of a frontier western, you know, something like Shane uh, or, or, or Jeremiah Johnson or one of those old kind of classic Hollywood movies. Yeah. So when you were making this, did you view it as being Pixar's first western or one of those classic Disney animal adventures or, 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 or something else? It was kind of something else. We did have the western concept uh, early on um, um, when making this story, but when we started making the, uh, the reels, the storyboard reels, um, they would be so much Western, it almost felt like a parody. The T-Rexes were running almost like 
Terry Gilliam from the Holy Grail, where it was like, and uh, it felt like we were just making fun of something, and it didn't have any heart or sincerity into it. And then so we kind of pulled back from that, but really wanted to honor what this film was really about, was that growth, that survival story of Arlo, where he becomes going from a boy to a man. And then, but we still kept a lot of the frontier elements versus the Western. And that, that happened after we went on this incredible research trip to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which um, was pretty early on in the process. And the, the intention was not to set the film there, but... Uh, that was where Shane was actually shot, wasn't it? That's Jackson? correct, yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. And that was a, a favorite of Pete's, that film. So we went there and just fell in love with the landscape and felt that that, you know, that doesn't have the classic Western... It's not the classic Western setting. And, and we liked it, and we thought it had more of a frontier spirit. So that's what we call it. It's also striking that this is one of Pixar's few films with a young protagonist. You know, the studio's movies are aimed at a young audience or suitable for young audiences. But even in stuff like Toy Story, you have, you know, Woody and Buzz are technically adults. Was there a reason that this had to be made with a, a young dinosaur? Could you have told this with an older character? Yeah, I was really finding that kind of idea of what maturity really was. In the beginning, Arlo was an older character when we first started, but then as we dug deeper into what this relationship would be, uh, I made a choice about midway through to make him feel younger so that you could feel that growth. And uh, um, yeah, it is really one of the first Pixar films where the characters are younger, but that was another new kind of challenge that it brought that uh, we were really excited about. We had to listen to 1,400 boys to find Arlo. So that was... That was uh that was a big casting challenge. We took a long time to find the right uh, boy to play that part. And it's kind of tough because when these movies take so long, you want to, you know, finding a movie about, I mean, making a movie about a kid that is just at the cusp of his voice changing was really scary because we found voices that one day you'd meet him and like, hey, how's it going? And then a month later, it's like, hey, I'm back here again. And you're like, oh my goodness, that kid's voice changed. And so it was a really quite kind of a balance to find. And we got under the wire, literally the last recording session we had with Raymond, his voice definitely had changed. Yeah, that was incredible. Yeah. And what was the idea of the, the hook behind this is that, you know, the meteor misses Earth 65 million years ago and, and dinosaurs and humans are able to coexist. Now this story could have been told, you know, like The Land Before Time or, you know, uh, an animated film like that where you just make the dinosaurs talk or Ice Age, you know, you have these prehistoric creatures but they're just given voices. But how important was it to the story to have this kind of evolutionary gulf between that time and the unspecified time at which this is set? Um, it was trying to connect to dinosaurs in the kind of a human way, as silly as that sounds. At first, one of the first drawings I had done was a dinosaur with a, with a long neck plowing the earth and farming. And uh, um, look, they could be driving cars, getting stuck in traffic, getting to Covent Garden, or they could be in a, in a spaceship but there was something really sincere about a hardworking dinosaur, part of a family that was surviving out in the wilderness. And it kind of connected to my favorite Westerns. What, a lot of those things at the heart of them are survival stories about testing one's metal and seeing what you're made of. And uh, um, I didn't grow up in the West. I only grew up on those movies. I grew up in New York City. And, uh, uh, but my family had a grocery store. And I really connected to that idea of us as a small family trying to survive in the city and then meeting these farmers and ranchers out in the Northwest where they were also families trying to survive, each member being integral to that survival. Do you have any particular favorite films from that time when you were growing up in New York that did have that kind of message that you wanted to replicate in this? Um, about getting through fear. A lot, of, a lot of movies are about like that you can overcome fear 
But that wasn't something that we found in this. It was about trying to survive it, that, uh, uh, you know, growing up as a minority and, and uh, um, being kind of chubby, I always felt outside and wanting to fit in and that, that kind of stopped me. These fears would stop me and uh, um, I never thought, uh, it, it tests me even today to be in front of all of you guys. There is a kind of feeling here that it's always, but, uh, but understanding that like, you know, um, that you could get through it, that you could survive it was something truthful to me versus I could just beat fear. But then nature also became that kind of metaphor in the film. Uh, we didn't want to do another dinosaur movie where the end of it was just another um, monster or carnivore that was going to attack you, but trying to do something where, something emotional where nature became that thing because you can't beat nature, you can't defeat it, but you could learn to survive it. And so Arlo, through all this stuff of loss and family, all these themes would kind of meld into that concept. The idea of the, the portrayal of fear through nature in the film, this might relate to what I'm going to ask now, which is about the backdrops to the film and how much they are at variance with the characters, because, you know, the, the dinosaur characters in this movie, and Spot as well, the little boy, are very kind of flamboyantly cartoonishly drawn. But the backdrops are intensely realistic. And I think the film has it's something that Brave was kind of reaching towards. But apart from Brave, it has this kind of grandeur that other Pixar films didn't really kind of reach for. So what was the thinking behind having these very, very highly realistic backdrops. I mean, did you ever experiment as well with having realistic dinosaurs there or have, you know, cartoony backdrops, cartoony dinosaurs or cartoony, di cartoony backdrops and realistic dinosaurs? Or was, was there kind of a magic uh, combination that you eventually settled on? Yes. I mean, we, we experimented with all of that, actually. And um, we tried the uh, more stylized backgrounds and it just, um, it didn't work because it made nature feel, it didn't make it, it wasn't very threatening, I guess. And having the more realistic look definitely made nature our um, antagonist. Um, the character, I mean, Pete, you should talk about the character development of the d design of Arlo. Yeah, like you were saying about trying to make nature um, threatening was a big deal because all the research that we had done, everywhere we would go to, God, this is gorgeous. And then someone would point out that's a landslide that created it. So there was kind of death connected to it. So there was a duality. But with Arlo, if we also tried a more realistic dinosaur, all you would think is you're an animal. You can eat the leaves. You can survive out here. You're going to be fine. But we really wanted to honor the heart of this thing where we wanted to find that boy in the dinosaur. And so that when you do see images of it, if this was a live action movie and you saw a human boy in the wilderness, you could immediately feel like, oh my goodness, he's lost. He's not going to survive out there. And so we were trying to capture that quality in this dinosaur. And so, you know, Earlier on, he was an older character, but we made him younger. His eyes got bigger, and then his knees were a little bit larger. His feet were a little bit bigger, so you could still feel that kind of young teen, that he was still growing, that he was still kind of, uh, um, you know, um, 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 vulnerable to that, that world. And so those, those extremes we were trying to push for. Denise, your background was uh, industrial light magic before you came to Pixar. And some of the movies that you worked on there, I believe you, you worked on episode three of the, the Star Wars prequels. Now, there are, there's so much CGI in those films. Uh, is it you know, quantitatively different to making an animated film, to working on one of those movies? Or how much expertise were you able to bring across from that previous role to Pixar? Um, that was actually what, what prompted me to uh, apply to Pixar, was working on what I thought was the last Star Wars movie, uh, episode three. Um, and, because everything, we, we created everything. Um, and I felt that I wanted to be more a part of the... Um, story process, and um, it just seemed like a bigger challenge to go and do a completely animated film. And uh, so that was what, what again, inspired me to, to go to Pixar. Um, 
and I'm really happy I did. Um, it, it, it was a very similar, well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, in live action, other than the Star Wars, you have background plates to start with, um, where at Pixar, you literally are designing and creating everything. And you know, you've heard that through the years, oh yeah, but then when you're there and literally everything you're touching has to be designed, built, shaded, uh, you know, it's, it's a daunting prospect, but I love it. They're great artists there, so it's been pretty satisfying. And I believe this film in particular was one that was, you know, Pixar have this reputation for, if something's half assembled and it's not working, it gets dismantled and then rebuilt. And I mean, even from having built IKEA bootcases, and after 20 minutes of work, I know how exasperating that can be. And this was after, I think, four years on The Good Dinosaur, it reached a point where it just was never going to get past this. And so it was taken apart. Were, were either of you involved in that decision? And, how, you know, what was the, the sensation? I mean, did it feel like, but we've just done so much already. Was it difficult to go back to uh, the, the storyboarding process from there? I was, I, I, see, I was brought on right before Pete uh, was named director, and um, we had sort of one last-ditch effort to um, basically kind of get the movie in a good place. And, you know, everyone basically took a stop to assess the uh, film and felt like it was not ready. And I was, of course, very grateful. And then shortly after, Pete was named director, and uh, we scrapped everything. We started from scratch. We took everyone off the show in order to give Pete time uh, to just solely work on story. We went all the way back to basically a treatment uh, script phase. And then from there, had to work like the wind, basically, like lightning. Uh, and we screened every six weeks. Um, and Pete did really a magnificent job. It was a very emotional experience. Um, I, I, I had two kids during the making of this movie. Um, um, I mean, it was intense and uh, um, um, just a roller coaster ride. It, it's very much like raising a child, and uh, not to put anything down to that, I just mean that you start with an idea and then you begin to raise it, and uh, you're, you're, you, it, the, the, you think like, okay, baby, you're gonna be a violinist, so that you, you, you start bringing violin teachers and you give it instruments and music and you start trying to help this little idea grow. And, uh, um, but then the idea started to get sick, you know, this little kid. And so at a certain point, you're like, OK, um, 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 uh, I really love this idea. I really love the world and the characters in this thing. We need help. And so you would bring all these other doctors and other help to keep this baby going. And so at, at a certain time, you, it, it starts telling you, like, you know what? Uh, the here's some more violin, les li violin lessons. I don't want to be a violinist anymore, says the, the idea. I want to be a basketball star. And you're like, oh my goodness. The idea starts to tell you what it wants to be. And uh, um, as, an, as a parent now, understanding, like, do I force you to do something else or do I listen to you? And then start, we started listening to what the idea wanted to become. And then it was this kind of the past two years raising this thing. Until now, I mean, we literally just finished the film a couple weeks ago. and. Uh, it really feels like, okay, the idea has now grown up to something that we're now saying goodbye to, and uh, we just hope that we've taught it right and hope that the, the, the movie's good to other people and people will be good to it. And uh, um, it really, there's a real emotional connection to the growth of that film. You can't really tell from uh, Peter's normal speaking voice, but he has uh, a cameo role in this film that appears in the trailer. Uh, I'm going to introduce a clip now of that character, but I want to ask before it plays, was this role written specifically with you in mind? 
not at the beginning. No, it was just something. Um, when you're st when you're when you're pitching storyboards, you do all the kind of the voices just to bring you know everyone into the story. So sometimes you're like, and then this guy, he's like, oh my dad, what are you gonna do with this? And then son, oh, you're gonna love what I'm gonna show you next. And so you just pitch, uh, uh, trying to tell the story as best as you can. And uh, um, I would pitch with this kind of specific voice. And uh, um, I didn't want to be the, the the performer. I was just like, I'm I'm gonna be directing this thing. I'd rather find a performer. But our executive producer John Lasseter was like you're gonna do the character. And I was like, no, 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 we'll find a performer. And he's like, no, you're gonna do the character. And I'm like, no, no, uh, this is my first time. You're gonna, do, you're gonna do it. You got it, you absolutely, you know. Great, so with that in mind, here's Peter as the pet collector. That creature protected you. Why? I don't know. I'm going home. Do you know how far Clotchith Mountain is? Good idea. We want him. W why Because it's terrifying out here. He can protect me like my friends. This is Fury. He protects me from the creatures that crawl in the night. This is Destructor. She protects me from mosquitoes. This is Dream Crusher. He protects me from having unrealistic goals. And this is Debbie. Yes, we need him. So did you direct yourself for that, or did you have John Lasseter standing there? To John Lasseter directed me, um, because when I was pitching it, I didn't realize where my voice was at uh, when you're doing the character. And so John, we got into one of the booths at Pixar, and John said, OK, start um, um, the lines and remember that you know, you're, you're afraid of everything. And so I would go into there and be like, you know, like, spot, you're all this kind of, you know, like, I want you. And then he goes, lower. And like, OK, spot, I really want you, lower. Swat, I really, and then like John would continue to push it to get lower, which because I didn't realize where I was doing it, and uh, uh, he got a little like too crazy. So like the lower I got, the more weird it got. So we had to find a balance where I try to stay low but still, you know, um, clear. <laughs> One of your first jobs in animation, and did this was just directly after you graduated CalArts or while you were at CalArts, but you you worked on Brad Bird's The Iron Giant. Um, how? different is what you're doing now to that experience? Because The Iron Giant is one of the, I'm sure people here would agree, it's one of the great hand-drawn animated films of, 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 of recent times. And um, this is, you know, obviously in, in, in visual style is just totally alien to that. And, you know, do you see what you do now as being connected to that at all? Or does it feel like a different kind of a job? Um, absolutely the same philosophy, you know. On that movie, I, would, I learned that you know, there wasn't a lot of money. Um, um, it was my first gig, and everyone on that show was trying to put their best foot forward. They were putting their heart into the work, and uh, um, 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 that idea that Brad would always push for any idea is a good idea coming from anywhere. It doesn't matter where it's from, and so that really brought up an idea of, in terms of any department, your job was to just try to make the film better. You weren't your title. You weren't your, you know, um, 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 these other kind of external things. It was all about whatever you were doing. You were just sincerely trying to make the best film possible. And uh, um, um, having learned that, I had worked at other studios and other films before Pixar, and uh, those aren't always the priorities. And uh, uh, when I got 
to do this gig working with Denise Reem, um, I would feel like it's the same philosophy, like a good idea can come from anywhere, and uh, um, that as long as everyone was trying to make the film better, um, um, that's all I cared about. And uh, I didn't care about title, it didn't mean it matter that you're the director, you're supervisor. It was just like, here's an idea that makes the film better. We want to make this you know, kid you know, better. And so that, that sincerely was the same philosophy and something I still really believe in in, in, in telling stories. We have some time for questions. If anyone has anything they'd like to ask, please do raise your hand. And I think we've got roving mics as well. Yeah, just um, there in, in, in the middle, yeah. Are you allowed to like share some of the alternative ones that you kind of turned down, some of those narratives that kind of went adrift? Or are you allowed to share any of that? Uh, yeah, um, absolutely. Um, there was a whole father-son story um, that was about changing the community. And um, you know, there were a lot of moments in the film, in this current version of the film, that uh, uh, we really liked, but it didn't work for this movie. For example, you know, there was a whole you know, the snow mountain scene that really tested Arlo in a way that um, 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 Spot was very incapable because he's pretty much naked throughout the whole movie. And so once we hit the snow that uh, Arlo would have to take charge. And But in making these stories, uh, we, it's all about trying to find the nuggets. And so you try something and it may not work and then you toss it away. But it doesn't mean that it's a bad idea. It just means it doesn't work for this certain uh, section of the story and so you're always constantly doing that and that at uh, Pixar my first job at Pixar was on Nemo finding Nemo and Andrew Stanton the director would say just fail as fast as you can because we don't have time to like hold on to stuff you know you've got to find it and then if you, you know that your gut is telling you that it's going to work then you pull that part and you keep moving forward with that but th there's all these ideas that you're just like this is such a good idea I'm so sorry bye I'll see you maybe another time we got to keep going and so um, there were a lot of things like that for sure there was a question in the front row as well so just wondering how many years in total have you spent on this film so including those first four years with editing with retakes etc cetera, etc cetera. I started in 2009 the tail end of 2009 and uh, um, that's when right after that my daughter would be born and then three years later, my son would be born, and, uh, and then I would, I would get the job to direct the project. Uh, two and a half years for me, so I'm a short timer. Can I ask a related question? How long in computer processing time does one frame of this film take to render? Because the sheer amount of detail in the backdrops is, is, is unbelievable. Yeah, there were some shots that we had seen where you had the birds in there and the river and the mountains and the mountains would go for hundreds of miles out that were, um, you know, a couple hundred hours in rendering time for one frame. But that would not be the most um, expensive rendering stuff. There's a moment in the beginning of the film when Arlo is born and in kind of this hay in this nest. That hay was so difficult to render, it took approximately 497 hours a frame to render, and it would just completely eat up our entire render farm. We thought the river water is so difficult, and we thought we had gone through sort of the, the gauntlet of like, this river shot is gonna eat up the whole farm this weekend, so don't, don't render anything else. Okay, we did that one huge river shot. But at the end, what brought the computer down to the knees was hay. And if you saw the shot, you'd be like, huh? Yeah. It's not that spectacular. But then in a way, that's proof that it's worked. Because, I, I mean, I saw the film yesterday, and I would never have thought in a million years that nest had been the thing that had taken a million years to render, but there was. <laughs> right. um, do we have any more questions? Um, 
Was, yeah, just at the back there. What was the budget? <laughs> there was it's a lot. Deep dark secret. Yeah. yeah They're um, all expensive. Any more questions? Yeah, in the middle there. Hi. Um, when pitching a project, uh, what gives it the green light? So what makes people at Pixar say, yeah, we want to make this film? Uh, when this project was first pitched, it was pitched by the original director, and uh, um, I had kind of missed out on that. He would ask me to come help him right after all those pitches. But the initial idea of what it was, of the boy and dog story, was kind of interesting to people. But once Bob pitched flipping it, that's what got everyone excited. But then once we, once I got the job to take over it two years ago, um, it was still retaining the heart of that, but then we really wanted to kind of create a new tone for the film where this film doesn't have a lot of dialogue. It, I mean, it has dialogue in it, but there are moments in the film where um, 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 it kind of takes its time to kind of explore the characters and the world. The story itself is also very simple, and so that got everyone excited as well. Um, John Lasseter would say when we first started pitching that concept of a simpler story that there's no place to hide. You can't hide behind the plot, and it's a risky thing, And uh, um, but those ideas like that got a lot of people excited to keep us moving forward. And there's never a moment where it's just like, you can go now. It was always this evolution of ideas that you're kind of, you know, um, I'm putting forward un until, it be until a lot more momentum kind of gets behind it. But I don't know if you find this, if this is interesting or not, but it's pretty standard for the directors to pitch three ideas when they're going for, going into development. And then they choose one to sort of, okay, move along. That's kind of the standard. You briefly mentioned the lack of dialogue there, and I should say that halfway through what I think you would call the film's emotional climax, um, I suddenly realized that for the duration of this incredibly heartbreaking scene, no one had actually said anything. You know, So the, 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 to tell a story in that way, I, I mean, that must be quite particularly tricky. Do you have to act it out in the studio or something and then just kind of take notes on people's faces, or how does that work? Yeah, um, it's a real collaborative effort, but you know, uh, um, that's one of the reasons a lot of the animators that we all love that type of challenge because you know you start off with flip books and you start with that magic of bringing something to life without dialogue. And uh, um, I come from um, a family where my parents spoke a different language than I did, so I'm always like looking at someone and like, what what are they really trying to say? What are they feeling? And so a lot of animators have to share that same common kind of goal, and uh, um, um, especially with a moment like that. Uh, uh, where emotions are true, can you find ways to communicate without saying something? And so the eyes and the body gesture, the mouth, everything becomes that much more important. And uh, uh, it becomes a group effort where um, you do sometimes act things out in front of each other, or you do try little tests out, or you talk about it a lot. And uh, um, every part of the buffalo is kind of used in trying to create a performance like that. But interestingly, that the scene that you're referring to was incredibly emotional in the roughest boards that we saw the very first time. I have to say, I, I mean, it was pretty astonishing, and you knew it was gonna be something special. Well, we have 